Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Wednesday's warning from the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee of, quote, a serious national security threat to the United States, which apparently has something to do with a possible Russian program to deploy nuclear weapons in space, which would violate the 1967 Outer Space Treaty banning such weapons in space. Joining us to discuss what might be behind this cryptic warning that House Speaker Johnson was quick to downplay is Tom Kalina, who until recently was the Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund, who previously served as a Research Director of the Arms Control Association, was Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Institute for Science and International Security, and the Director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and the co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Then we'll examine the foreign money pouring in to influence our elections and the role of big consulting firms like McKinsey & Company in fronting four unsavory dictators seeking to buy American politicians and sanitize their reputations. Joining us is Casey Michelle, the director of the Combating Kleptocracy Program at the Human Rights Foundation, as well as a writer, analyst, and investigative journalist working on topics ranging from kleptocracy, illicit finance, dark money, foreign lobbying, and foreign influence to the legacies of Russian and Soviet colonialism. He is the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, and his forthcoming book is Foreign Agents, How American Lobbyists and Lawmakers Threaten Democracy Around the World. We will discuss his article at the New Republic, The American Consulting Firms That Live in Fear of Their Murderous Clients. Then finally, on a day when the Atlanta prosecutor Fanny Willis was on trial instead of Donald Trump, who was on tape trying to rig the 2020 election in Georgia, we'll compare how Brazil is dealing with an insurrectionist president in Bolsonaro compared to how the American legal system is yet to hold Trump to account for his many crimes. Joining us is John Pfeffer, the co-director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. Previously, he worked as an associate editor of the World Policy Journal and has been an international affairs representative in Eastern Europe and East Asia for the American Friends Service Committee. He's the author of a number of books, most recently Aftershock, A Journey into Eastern Europe's Broken Dreams, and we'll discuss his latest article on foreign policy and focus, What Brazil Can Teach the U.S. About Defending Democracy from Insurrectionists. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate and commercial free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Tom Kalina, who until recently was the Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund, where he worked as a researcher, analyst and advocate to end U.S. nuclear testing, rationalize anti-missile programs, extend the non-proliferation treatment and secure Senate ratification of the New START Treaty. He previously served as Research Director of the Arms Control Association, was the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Institute for Science and International Security, and the Director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He is the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and the co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Kalina. Ian, great to be here. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And what do you make of the warning issued on Wednesday by House Intelligence Committee Republican Chairman Mike Turner, who issued this cryptic warning saying that there was a serious national security threat facing the United States? And uh, the White House doesn't appear to be particularly happy about this, but there's a meeting today uh, with the top eight, that's the heads of the the chair and minority head of the House and of the Senate, 
with the National Security Council, with Jake Sullivan. Uh, I'm not sure whether Biden's in on the meeting, but what's going on here? Why issue this dire warning? Uh, well, it, it's unclear. It certainly was not much in the spirit of Valentine's Day. It kind of gave everyone a bit of a scare, unfortunately. But, you know, it, 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 if reports are true, uh, what we're, we're seeing is intelligence telling us that Russia may be moving forward towards deploying uh, a nuclear weapon of some kind in space. Um, and again, if that's true, this is significant because because it's never been done. No nation has a nuclear weapon deployed in space. This is, in fact, banned by the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Uh, and for very good reason, we don't want an arms race in space. We don't want countries rushing to put nuclear weapons in space because it's dangerous, it's risky, um, and it's better that we don't do it. And so, you know, one of the one of the key things to see here is that the Outer Space Treaty has done a really good job over the last decades, and we should try to keep it going. But in, in terms of what uh, Congressman Turner is up to, you know, there's a number of theories here, uh, but probably the most likely one is that he released this information now um, because he wants to build congressional concern about what Russia is up to. Because there's a big debate right now, as you know, where the Senate has passed uh, a bill for U.S. support for Ukraine uh, and, and Israel and other things. Um, but the House uh, leadership is not letting this bill come to the floor. And so it would appear that what um, Congressman Turner is doing is, is, is trying to build support among his Republican colleagues to support Ukraine uh, with U.S. aid. And, and I would also say that this is probably Ukraine is probably the focus of, of, of what Russia is up to. Right. We can also ask the question, why would Russia be considering uh, putting nuclear weapons in space? Um, and, and this is probably in character with Russia threatened, threatening to use nuclear weapons uh, against Ukraine uh, or withdrawing or suspending the New START treaty, the nuclear treaty that it uh, announced earlier. The, these are ways to for Russia to try to gain leverage on the United States uh, to reduce its support of Ukraine. So in, from both perspectives, one could see this as about Ukraine. Um, but uh, but certainly from the Russian perspective, it's it's dangerous, it's risky, and uh, and we hope they don't do it. Well, it looks as though that might be the answer to why Mike Turner, the Republican uh, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, went public with this warning in order to shore up support for Ukraine, because immediately Mike Johnson, the Speaker, has been urging calm and saying that, you know, steady hands are at the wheel, don't worry, don't worry. So given that Mike Johnson takes his orders from Donald Trump, who's trying to scuttle aid to Ukraine, possibly because Vladimir Putin is telling him to do it, this could well be the motive, right? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly telling that, that Speaker Johnson is saying, you know, don't worry, uh, nothing to see here, because that would that would sort of play into his narrative um, that we shouldn't be voting on Ukraine aid right now uh, and that there's more important things to do, for example, um, you know, worry about immigration um, and that kind of thing. So so the fact that Johnson is playing this down would would give credence to this theory that that what Congressman Turner is really all about is trying to build support for uh, U.S. support for Ukraine. So Congressman Turner said on Wednesday I am requesting that President Biden declassify all the information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration, and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat. But we don't exactly know what the threat is, and you were suggesting that it might have something to do with putting nuclear weapons in space in order to presumably destroy all of the satellite communications, which the entire military depends upon. It's also possible that it may involve putting a nuclear power plant, if you will, a small one, in space. So is it nuclear weapons or nuclear power we're talking about here? Again, you know, we don't know. Um, but most of the media reports I've read 
seem to think that it's a nuclear weapon that would be deployed in space. Um, that would be the more dramatic thing because there are plenty of, of nuclear-powered satellites in space already. Uh, that would that would not be a departure from past activity. Uh, deploying a nuclear weapon in space would be a new, risky, dangerous, destabilizing thing. But I would just say that there's a lot of ways to attack satellites. You know, not just by putting nuclear weapons in space. And, and I would also say that, you know, for people's understanding, the United States depends on satellite communication more than any other country, right? As you said, for, for military purposes, commercial purposes, communication purposes, the United States deploys more satellites, we're more dependent on satellites than anyone else. Uh, and so it's, it's in our interest not to have an arms race in space where we would be the biggest loser because the United States being more dependent has more to lose by losing those satellites um, in space. But, but there are other ways that Russia could threaten those satellites. Both the United States and Russia and China, by the way, have the capability to target satellites uh, by firing rockets from the ground, for example, or, or lasers, the kind of things that people are working on. So this is not the only way to threaten satellites. And, and so it makes me think that what Russia is really after is some sort of a, a, a political move to do something dramatic that ups the stakes that it, in an effort to try to gain some leverage on the United States to say, hey, we've got this new game changer capability. Uh, we're going to deploy it unless you back off on Ukraine. Right. And that's the kind of thing that they did on the New Star Treaty. It's, it's basically the message on, on using or threatening to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Uh, so it fits with Russian behavior. Um, I don't think it's going to work, right? The United States is not going to reduce its support for Ukraine uh, because Russia threatens to deploy a nuclear weapon in space. Um, so, so you know, Russia may go through with it. Um, and it's, it's, it's risky and dangerous because if Russia puts a nuclear weapon in space, what does the United States do, right? What's the response? Does the United States shoot it down? Does the United States put up one of its own nuclear weapons in space? Both those things are dangerous and risky. Um, and so we, we really should try to stop this before it starts by, if possible, and I know this is hard, talking to Russia before they do it to try to get some of agreement, some sort of agreement not to start an arms race in space. And not to break the 1967 treaty, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty was a really good idea, and it still is a really good idea, not to start a race to put more and more nuclear weapons in space, which is to nobody's benefit. And, and once it starts, like any arms race, um, it's really hard to stop. Uh, and so the best way to, as they say, uh, the only way to win an arms race is not to run. Uh, so let's not start this arms race. Let's not do anything to encourage Russia to do this. And if possible, let's try to work with Russia not to do it. But if Russia does do it, that is put a nuclear weapon in space, you know, we need to understand that this is not necessarily um, an existential threat to the United States, right? Russia has other ways of attacking satellites. Russia has other ways of attacking the United States, even with nuclear weapons. So if Russia does do this, we should remain calm and try to figure out what's the best approach to stop this from escalating, from getting worse, rather than meeting them with some kind of tit-for-tat response or, worse yet, attacking that satellite once it's up there. Because once you blow up a nuclear uh, satellite in space, you're likely to cause a lot of the uh, terrible implications that, that you were looking at in the first place. In other words, that detonation would, would still hurt a lot of the satellites that are up there and cause a lot of damage. But my understanding is that scenarios for a nuclear war start out with a high-altitude nuclear explosion to generate a huge EMP, electromagnetic pulse, that would fry all of the electronic circuits of whatever the country that the blast took over, happened over. And is this a part of that? In other words, would you be firing a nuclear blast from space in order to create an EMP pulse that would fry the circuits of the enemy? 
You know, it's it's not clear. I mean, there's there's different motivations for this, right? I mean, there's the political motivated that I already described, but the military rationale could be uh, to go after the satellites in space. It could be to go after, as you were describing, more of the satellites and ground infrastructure in the United States if it was positioned correctly. Um, but as, as you say, uh, anyone who's contemplating a major military or nuclear strike on the United States would want to knock out our intelligence, our communications, our military satellites and ground communications um, first, because that would essentially blind us to whatever attack um, was to come. Uh, and so but but, you know, but the United States can do that, too, to Russia. And and this is you know, this is the key as to why none of this has ever happened, because Russia knows that if Russia does this, the United States can do it, too. Uh, and both sides lose. And, and nothing has changed in that, you know, decades long dynamic of mutually assured destruction, which is that it's no one it's in no one's interest to start a nuclear war. So it goes back. It begs the question of what is Russia doing? Why are they doing this? And, and to me, it's about gaining leverage over Ukraine. Uh, I don't think it's going to work, but we should be careful not to somehow give in to Russian escalation and make this even worse. Well, it's obvious that you've got to follow what Putin is doing as opposed to what he's saying, because he just said today that he thought, he thought the interview he did with uh, Tucker Carlson, that Carlson was, a, was a, a bit of an idiot. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he, he was underwhelmed, shall we say, by Tucker Carlson. But he also said he would actually support the re-election of Joe Biden because he doesn't think he's, he's in any way mentally impaired. That he, When he met with him a couple of years ago, that he seemed sharp and occasionally looked at his papers, but so do I look at my papers, so what's the big deal? Now, you might be puzzled as to why Putin is not endorsing Trump and endorsing uh, Biden for the simple reason that if he were to endorse Trump, the Democrats and the, and the Biden administration would use that against Trump, and that's not what Putin wants. So, as I say, you can't take seriously anything Putin says, but you have to take seriously what the Russians are doing. Yes, for sure. And, and again, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of, you know, if, if these reports are true and if Russia is preparing under some unknown timeline to put a nuclear weapon in space, that's a very serious thing. Um, and so we need to deal with it um, in a serious way, hopefully first by trying to stop it from happening at all. Um, but if it happens, let's not make it worse. Well, there was a project uh, back in the 60s, which was the acronym was FOBS, F-O-B-S, Fractional Orbital Bombardment Systems, where the idea was to put a whole bunch of nuclear weapons up in space. Uh, as opposed to you know the triad of having them on submarines and on on ICBMs and on bombers, did that lead to the sixty seven treaty? And would there be some you know revival of the FOBS platform? Very, very possibly. You know, I mean, this is the kind of thing we want to avoid is is the United States, Russia, and China because China's done tests like this as well to rush to put nuclear weapons in space, uh, because once they're there, um, they're going to stay there and the numbers are going to grow. Uh, what's so dangerous about this is that nuclear weapons in space are, are inherently vulnerable, right? Satellites are vulnerable. Nuclear weapons on satellites are going to be vulnerable, almost tempting other nations to try to uh, take them down uh, by striking them with anti-satellite weapons that all of these nations have. And, and once you start doing that, you know, well, the temptation to destroy them is bad enough. And if anyone actually does it, not only do you have, you know, incredible amounts of space debris, which are in of itself is a danger to satellites, but you've got, you know, potential explosions going off in space that can also damage satellites. And then, by the way, you have to remember that satellites fail and sometimes fall back to Earth and come back through the atmosphere. And the last thing we would want, and in that case, is a lot of nuclear material burning up in the atmosphere and coming back down uh, on Earth, which has happened in the past with nuclear-powered satellites, not, not nuclear-armed satellites. So there's many, many reasons why having a nuclear arms race in space is a terrible idea. 
Um, and it's unfortunate that Russia is is raising this this possibility now. But again, it's in it's in character with them trying to push any button they think they can to kind of you know disturb the equilibrium uh, of U.S. support of Ukraine uh, and try to reduce that support. And it's it's quite ironic that you know. U.S. support for Ukraine already is in trouble, right? We're seeing that right now in Congress. Um, and it, yeah, I'm sure this is not what Russia intended uh, to do something that would be used by people like Congressman Turner to actually build support for U.S. support for Ukraine and therefore opposition to Russia. But, but that could be what's happening. Well, Tom Kleiner, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, thank you much. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Tom Kalina, who until recently was the director of policy and at the Plowshares Fund, where he worked as a researcher, analyst, and advocate to end U.S. nuclear testing, rationalize anti-missile programs, extend the non-proliferation treaty, and secure Senate ratification for the New START treaty. He previously served as research director of the Arms Control Association, was the executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Science and International Security, and director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and the co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining foreign money pouring in to influence our elections and the role of big consulting firms like McKinsey and Company in fronting for unsavory dictators seeking to buy American politicians and sanitize their reputations. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Casey Michelle, who's the director of the Combating Kleptocracy Program at the Human Rights Foundation, as well as a writer, analyst, and investigative journalist working on topics ranging from kleptocracy, illicit finance, dark money, foreign lobbying, and foreign interference to the legacies of Russian and Soviet colonialism. He's the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, and his forthcoming book is Foreign Agents, How American Lobbyists and Lawmakers Threaten Democracy Around the World. And he has an article at the New Republic, The American Consulting Firms That Live in Fear of Their Murderous Clients. Welcome to Background Briefing, Casey Michelle. Thanks so much, Ian. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's a pretty extraordinary story about how these big companies like McKinsey and & Company and Boston Consulting Group are terrified of their own clients like Saudi Arabia. And this all came up in a recent uh, Senate permanent subcommittee on investigations in which, as witnesses, the representatives of McKinsey and Boston Consulting uh, said that they essentially couldn't tell Senator Blumenthal about their arrangements with the Saudis because (laughs) they were afraid of the Saudis. And eventually Blumenthal had to say, well, who are you working for here, the United States or Saudi Arabia? I mean, that's what it comes down to. So give us a sense then. We know that Putin, a part of his hybrid warfare kit, is to weaponize money through oligarchs. And they've been incredibly successful, for example, in the UK, where Oliver Bullock's written about how they've basically tried to buy the conservative government. Of course, in the UK... Their uh, elections only last for a few weeks as opposed to years here in the United States. <laughs> and ours cost billions. Yeah. We're much more open to mischief here in the United States. But yeah. in general, how do you see the weaponization of money by Putin in particular being having its uh, fingerprints here on U.S. elections? Yeah, absolutely, Ian. That's a, a great question. I mean, I think at the end of the day, kind of taking the, the, the broadest vantage, it is so clear, and it's been clear for years, 
that the United States of America uh, has left itself open to any and all foreign malicious malign actors, dictatorships, oligarchs, kleptocratic regimes around the world, not just out of Russia, but certainly led by those uh, in Moscow is kind of setting the playbook, setting the precedent that so many other dictatorships are more than happy to uh, take advantage of, of using their wealth, using their ill-gotten gains, using their stolen pilfered money and injecting it into the uh, either the American economy uh, to launder it or directly into the American political establishment and political campaigns to affect American policy writ large, or sometimes the both of those. Certainly those are not mutually exclusive whatsoever. And again, as, as you mentioned, Ian, um, uh, Putin, uh, his inner circle in Russia, the kind of oligarchic nexus that um, surrounds him, they have been doing this for years and years. Obviously, they've been doing this in other Western democracies as well. But we, what we are increasingly seeing, which is frankly even more concerning, is that it is no longer just the Putins of the world or the Russians of the world that are doing this. Uh, as you mentioned at the outset of this conversation today, there was a hearing just last week uh, in the Senate and Congress that didn't get nearly enough attention looking at exactly what it is that the Saudis, the Saudi regime, which in many ways is perhaps surprisingly even worse than uh, what's taking place in Russia right now, at least in terms of domestic repression. The Saudis are doing much the same with maybe even a far bigger pot of money. The problem is we actually do not know exactly what it is the Saudis are doing. There hasn't been nearly enough focus, nearly enough investigation, certainly compared to Russia, uh, about it. I, I know we can, we can talk a little bit more about the hearing, but the main takeaway for me, which was so concerning, is that these consulting groups, these major, major American consulting groups, we know that they are working hand in glove with the Saudis. We know they're helping direct Saudi investments and Saudi influence. But we don't know where exactly they're going. We don't know what exactly they're targeting or how much they're even being paid. And when they were issued subpoenas by Congress, they went back, as you mentioned, to these senators and said, look, senators, we're sorry. We'd love to comply. But because of threats from the Saudi regime to potentially jail our employees, we cannot do that, which is, frankly, the first time I've ever seen that as a defense from these organizations working hand in glove for these dictatorships. Well, they don't want to end up being hacked apart by a bouncer, do they? Understandably so. I, I, I give them credit where that is. I certainly wouldn't want to be either. Right. Well, an example, though, of foreign influence in our elections, and remember back after Citizens United was passed by the Supreme Court, which opened the floodgates of, of dark money into our politics, at a joint session of Congress, then President Obama criticized the decision, saying it had terrible implications because foreign money could pour in to our elections. And representing the Supreme Court at the joint session for the State of the Union address was none other than Sam Alito, Justice Alito, the guy that loves to hang out with billionaires. And he mouthed, not true. Well, it is true, and it's turned out to be devastating. And, and a more recent example is that the Russian spy who helped organize Russian money laundered through the NRA to help elect Trump in 2016, Maria Bettina. The guy that ran her, the oligarch working for Putin that ran her, Konstantin Nikolaev, his biggest donation he that... Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, got in 2018, came from Konstantin uh, Nikolaev's company in Texas, a uh, Texas oil and gas company. So there you have an example. I mean, do they own the Speaker? Is that why Mike Johnson is holding up aid to Ukraine? I don't know, but inquiring minds want to know. Well, certainly this money wasn't spent, wasn't donated, without any kind of foresight. Again, it's not difficult to see why it is that Russian actors, those close to Putin, those in the Kremlin would use these kinds of donations, would use these kinds of networks, would use these kind of loopholes in the American financial system, and especially as it pertains to campaign financing, to target the politicians they think will work to their benefit, will work uh, to further the policies they care about. And Ian, I, I, you know, as a shameless self-plug, my forthcoming book, Foreign Agents, looks at specifically this phenomenon not only of Citizens United in and of itself, but especially the role of American foreign lobbyists that we know are already working 
on behalf of these foreign regimes in Russia and elsewhere, but are also transforming into or being transformed into these kind of cutouts, these kind of middlemen that can route this kleptocratic money directly to legislators that these regimes are already targeting. So there are any number of ways that these regimes can get their money, get their wealth, get their donations bundled, in many cases hidden, but still um, uh, given to these politicians, including figures like House Speaker Johnson, though again, by no means limited to him whatsoever. So why don't the American people, do they not know about, I mean, at least in the UK, people have figured out and they've been, as I say, Oliver Bullock and others have even conducted a tour or open to the public to tour the mansions of oligarchs in, in London. Is there any way that over here we can sort of name and shame essentially the whores and hirelings that <laughs> operate in the, these big august companies like McKinsey and Company. Mm-hmm. I mean, the expression apparently within the trade uh, for lawyers and accountants who take care of dirty foreign money, they're called white boys. Mm. So can we expose the white boys? The sliver of good news is that there has been remarkable progress on the legislative and on the regulatory side, even just in the past few months. For the very first time, the U.S. finally has a shell company registry. Anyone forming a shell company in the U.S. will have to reveal who they are or potentially go to jail if they don't. Uh, There are brand new regulations requiring transparency in American real estate and in American private equity and hedge funds, both of which have been extremely popular destinations for laundering wealth, for hiding the tracks of, uh, again, in this case, things like Russian oligarchs or those, frankly, out of any kind of dictatorship around the world. This is all good news. You know, these are these are elements that we have to look to uh, as signs that progress can be made and success can be found if we push hard enough. But at the end of the day, we still have this glaring gargantuan issue that we've been talking Talking about today, Ian, which is campaign finance and campaign finance reform. I do not know when that is actually going to come. I don't have a sense that anything is even necessarily in the offing. Again, given the kind of rank partisan splits and partisan rancor that we have seen in the United States over the past few years, maybe you know, going back even before the past few years, I don't know when that is going to change or if that's going to change anytime soon. That might be the last big domino to fall in terms of winding back and undoing all of the damage that Citizens United did to the American body politic, to the safety and security of American elections. Because again, to, to echo what you said earlier, that decision as well as a number of other developments uh, that are related, uh, opened up the floodgates, opened up all the doors to illicit finance, questionable wealth, and foreign wealth, especially linked to some of the most heinous regimes on the planet, in many cases who are being directed, again, by the McKinsey's and the Boston consulting groups of the world to do exactly this. Uh, And again, as we saw in the hearing just last week, when legislators and congressmen actually come to ask or even to demand to uh, uh, look at the documents about what these organizations are doing, they throw up their hands and say, well, Senator, I would love to comply. uh, But unfortunately, I might be, you know, uh, 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 have a bone saw taken to me by my Saudi benefactors. And I wouldn't want that whatsoever. So the poster boy, though, for the white boys, the Americans, uh, consultants who take care of foreign dictators and launder their money and get influence uh, on Capitol Hill to whitewash their hideous human rights uh, records. They, of course, the, po- the poster boy again is none other than Paul Manafort, who Donald Trump chose as his first campaign manager in 2016. He, of course, uh, worked closely with Yanukovych, the Ukrainian kleptocrat. And Trump himself is, is also the poster boy for money laundering because in the 80s, the KGB and Russian money was laundered through the Brighton Beast mob into 3,200 condos in Trump's properties <clears throat> were bought by Russian mobsters and other cutouts. They also laundered money through Trump's casinos in Atlantic City, and then they kept bailing him out of many bankruptcies over his career. I think he had, I think, five major bankruptcies, and Wall Street wouldn't touch him. He was blacklisted, so he turned to Russia, and they've been funding him forever, largely through Deutsche Bank, with loans guaranteed by invisible Russian oligarchs. This is again, you got Manafort and Trump. They wrote the book on all this, and yet 
As far as I can tell, Trump is not in jail. And in fact, t today, endlessly on cable news, all you saw was a hearing into Fannie Willis having an affair with a, a fellow prosecutor, all of which is helping Trump. So yeah. Yeah. Can, can Trump be held accountable along with Manafort? By the way, right. he dodged a bullet and he never right. ratted right. Trump out like a good mob soldier. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ian, you're exactly right. They wrote the book on this. And I, I suppose I'm proud to say that again in another shameless self-plug. I wrote the book on Paul Manafort and the playbook that he created. And again, that's coming out this August um, from St. Martin's Press. It's called Foreign Agents, How American Lobbyists and Lawmakers Threatened Democracy Around the World, including right here in the United States of America. Look, is, is Trump going to be held liable? Is he going to be found guilty? And is he potentially going to prison? There is certainly a possibility of that. I would not discount uh, the court cases, um, either at the state level or at the federal level. Of course, if Trump is elected in November, he will swiftly, he will immediately uh, pardon himself and dismiss the federal cases. And presumably any state cases will be postponed until he's served his term out. Though, again, what that uh, the end of any kind of presidential uh, term or career for President Trump would be. Don't need to tell you how scary that can end up being. Certainly look back to, to something like January 6th and how close we were to significant bloodbath in Washington uh, based on some of the people that broke into the into the Capitol. But again, I think it goes back to uh, whether it's the Manaforts and the Trumps of the world or frankly, any of these American companies and organizations and individuals we've been talking about. The United States of America left itself wide open. Uh, it's we stopped paying attention, stopped being concerned. We thought capital was apolitical. We thought all of this inflow, all of this intake, all of these investments were simply for the benefit of capital gains, of profits, of net revenues writ large without realizing they always, 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 always came with strings attached. I mean, I, I will say, Ian, in, in, my, in my work and the books that I've written, the work that I have published, it is clear to me that all of these American organizations, all of these American industries are more than happy at a certain point, not, not always, but at a certain point, at a certain monetary threshold, more than happy to work with whoever they can, whoever they want, doing whatever it is their clients need to do. Because at the end of the day, they're not committing any crimes. And also because if they turn down those clients, those clients will simply go to a competitor, they'll go to another consulting group or another law firm or, or another PR firm. So in a certain sense, if you look at it, structurally, you look at the incentive structure, a lot of it becomes, frankly, unsurprising, and you come away realizing why it is and how it is that the McKinsey's and the Boston consulting groups of the world did end up working with the Saudis, continue to work with the Saudis, and now find themselves, as they claim, between a rock and a hard place, and legislators in Washington kind of left scratching their head about how they can ever force McKinsey and their colleagues to reveal what it is they're doing on behalf of uh, Saudi. But just in closing, what did McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group and Teneo, all of whom work for the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Public Investment Fund, the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia gave Jared Kushner at least $2 billion, probably more, over the objections of the fund's money managers, uh, yeah. uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, Jared Kushner's buddy, overruled them. So, I mean, in other words, Trump is a clumsy kleptocrat. It seems like Jared Kushner is a slick kleptocrat. It does seem, to an extent, that Kushner does know what he's doing, at least insofar as he compares to his father-in-law. I think what you just mentioned, Ian, is maybe one of the funniest, darkly funniest moments of this. There was a series of pitch decks related to Jared Kushner's uh, investment fund that were uh, leaked uh, eventually and reported on. Uh, and you took a look at them. I, I took a look at them, and you know, you kind of you realize there's not there's nothing there. It's all just him building upon his political connections, which is why why the board overseeing the Saudi investments actually advised against even targeting Kushner and potentially and, and then investing with Kushner and his firm. Whereas, as you rightly mentioned, then MBS again, the, the gentleman who was behind the hacking apart of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in terms of, uh, as well as a broad, broad, broad array of other repressive uh, moments and methods, uh, uh, MBS overruled them and said, no, we are still going to plow billions of dollars into the president's, uh, former president's son-in-law's firm itself. Uh, again, that's the last we heard of it, but because of the lack of transparency and the lack of clarity, we do not know what they've been doing ever since. We do not know as well what it is they've been doing with McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group or these other consultancies that were in Washington just last week.
Well, Casey, Michelle, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Casey Michelle, who's the director of the Combating Kleptocracy Program at the Human Rights Foundation, as well as a writer, analyst, and investigative journalist working on topics ranging from kleptocracy, illicit finance, dark money, foreign lobbying, and foreign interference to the legacies of Russian and Soviet colonialism. He's the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, and his forthcoming book is Foreign Agents, How American Lobbyists and Lawmakers Threaten Democracy Around the World. And he has an article at the New Republic, The American Consulting Firms That Live in Fear of Their Murderous Clients. We're going to get a restation break. We're back comparing how Brazil is dealing with an insurrectionist president in Bolsonaro compared to how the American legal system has yet to hold Trump to account for his many crimes. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, John Pfeffer, who's the co-director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. Previously, he worked as an associate editor of the World Policy Journal and has been an international affairs representative in Eastern Europe and East Asia for the American Friends Service Committee. He's the author of a number of books, most recently, Aftershock, A Journey into Eastern Europe's Broken Dreams. And his latest article at Foreign Policy and Focus is What Brazil Can Teach the U.S. About Defending Democracy from Insurrectionists. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Pfeffer. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for joining us. And the recent Supreme Court oral arguments on the Colorado case to take Trump off the primary ballot, what struck me about it, John, was that here you have a hearing about an insurrection on January the 6th, and the right-wing justices, the majority, and along with two of the liberal justices, didn't want to talk about insurrection. It was almost surreal. How did it strike you? Absolutely. I mean, I, I understand the, the new right-wing consensus on the Supreme Court, but you know this is a this is an absolutely essential decision to make and you know the the uh the court and frankly the entire american political system punted this issue back uh, after the civil war when it failed to uh to hold jefferson davis accountable uh, he was of course the head of the confederacy and it set a dangerous precedent of not addressing this question of insurrection and as you may know, and even though we had this insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment, uh, any number of uh, former Confederates ended up serving in Congress. I mean, this was a, a very brief moment in American history when there was some resolve to address this question of insurrection and insurrectionists and an attempt to keep them from taking office again. But it failed as, you know, Reconstruction failed. And there was an unfortunate backlash against that approach. But we're not even, you know, we're having the backlash without the actual attempt to rein in uh, the insurrectionists this time round. And that's, that's a very unfortunate situation. So let's talk about the Brazilian case that you bring up in your article at Foreign Policy and Focus, what Brazil can teach the U.S. about defending democracy from insurrectionists. They're clearly doing a lot more to deal with Bolsonaro, who is a very Trump-like figure, and in many ways, almost everything in his political career, as short as it is, and Trump actually has an equally short political career, has been about insurrection, has it not? Th that's absolutely correct. I mean, Bolsonaro had made no bones of his uh, his uh, being enamored of the military dictatorship that was in place in Brazil from roughly the mid 60s to the mid 1980s. Um, and, you know, he, he effectively wanted to bring Brazil back to that era. And he in a number of statements and a number of his um, actions uh, leading up to the his attempt to become reelected uh, as uh, the leader of Brazil, he you know made his 
his preferences clear. Um, he was voted out of office. And uh, there was a moment there, very similar to the moment here in the United States, where Bolsonaro uh, decided that he would try to remain in office. Now, the difference between Brazil and the United States is that there was, of course, uh, not only a history of military coups, but a, a, a strong military with strong uh, support within that military for this uh, idea of bringing the country back under military dictatorship. It was not widespread necessarily within the military, but there were people within the military that Bolsonaro could sit down with and say, hey, you know, let's let's plan this out. Uh, fortunately, there were enough people at the head of the military, the Brazilian military, to say no. And that uh, attempt at a military coup was kind of nipped in the bud. There were other kind of similarities with the United States, a, a kind of a, a civil insurrection, if you will, similar to January 6th that took place uh, even close to that date, January 9th in Brazil, uh, with crowds taking over, you know, the, the three, you know, uh, branches, uh, the buildings associated with the three branches of government. Uh, and it took uh, the authorities five hours or so to take control of those buildings again. Um, so a kind of similar set of efforts by both Trump and Bolsonaro to extend their uh, reign, if you will, uh, through illegitimate means. But the response by the two, uh, by the U.S. government subsequently and by the Brazilian government, have been very different, very different indeed. And just to start, um, you know, the, the Brazilian government actually, the Brazilian legal system, uh, concluded that uh, Bolsonaro should be prevented from uh, taking office, public office, at least until 2030. And that was not on the basis of his plans to, um, to retain power through a coup. It was actually because of false information that he spread about the elections. He sat down with foreign diplomats and he repeated many of the kind of fake news that we're familiar with here in the United States about the election being rigged, about uh, voting machines being uh, compromised. And because this was uh, clearly false information, uh, that basically disqualified him for uh, running from uh, from running for public office uh, until 2030. So that was the first step that Brazil did, and that that has taken a, a great deal of pressure off of the Brazilian political system once it kind of uh, removed uh, Bolsonaro from the equation. But Bolsonaro was recently arrested, was he not? And his passport was confiscated. I, he didn't go to jail, but wasn't he uh, arrested and have his, had his passport confiscated? Well, his passport has been confiscated and he's under um, investigation, as mm -hmm. are a number of other key figures, including his son, a number of his key advisors, a couple people in the military. And this is connected to uh, the second set of charges. Uh, the first, of course, being the false information that he spread. The second being the coup that he... Um, considered and began organizing until he hit the opposition of kind of the, the head of the army, for instance. Um, and uh, these investigations were launched uh, principally last month and have continued this month. And this is, I think, a fundamentally different approach than the United States. The United States basically has prosecuted, you know, people who participated in January 6th, uh, and there's been a kind of laborious legal process going after a few other actors, including those connected with uh, attempting to overturn the election in Georgia, for instance, the state of Georgia. But for Brazil, they're really kind of trying to root out uh, all of the actors who are engaged in this illegal enterprise of trying to um, subvert democracy in Brazil. And uh, it's going to have a profound impact on um, the state of politics in Brazil, because a, a number of uh, actors, not just Bolsonaro, but a number of actors in his party um, are associated with this coup attempt. And so it's not just, you know, a, a single kind of uh, attempt. It's really a, uh, a larger enterprise, I would say, uh, that's committed to um, overturning democracy in Brazil. And uh, this is 
absolutely essential for democracies to survive, they have to address uh, undemocratic challenges to those democracies. And the previous leader who uh, beat Bolsonaro in the elections, recent elections, which was a narrow victory, but nevertheless he beat him, Lula, is he behind this or is it the judicial system in Brazil that's doing the heavy lifting uh, as opposed to Merrick Garland, our attorney general, who dithered for two years going after the small fire who mobbed the Capitol on January the 6th as opposed to the architects of the coup attempt? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Lula's in an interesting position. I mean, uh, as you say, he, he, he has returned to office. Uh, it was a narrow victory over Bolsonaro. But of course, he too has been um, investigated, even jailed uh, for, in his case, corruption, uh, cases that were overturned. Um, and Lula has come out and said, look, you know, I want to make sure that Bolsonaro and everybody around Bolsonaro uh, gets uh, gets their day in court in a way that I did not. Um, so he he knows that in order for this um, uh, this procedure, this process to go forward in a way that will be accepted by the Brazilian population, it has to be clear and transparent. It has to rely on providing information to the public, not suppressing information. Um, it has to rely on clear judicial rules and regulations. So this has been, um, you know, a, a very so far transparent process, uh, and Lula has. A, has attempted as much as possible to make it uh, political, of course, because it's taking place within a political system, but not partisan. In other words, not going after a particular party um, uh, or, you know, uh, in in order to destroy that particular party. Um, And, you know, that's something that, of course, we could learn from here in the United States. But, of course, that would require, um, uh, in particular, uh, members of the Republican Party to view the uh, the various legal challenges to Donald Trump uh, in nonpartisan ways uh, to to see them as what they are they are efforts to uh, bring in a person who has um, who has violated laws and regulations here in the United States that go beyond any partisan question um, unfortunately there are precious few members of the Republican Party, especially those who remain within the party or representing that party in public institutions, who view uh, this as a nonpartisan process. Well, already in Brazil, just this month, the federal authorities have raided dozens of locations. They arrested a prominent Catholic priest, several military figures as well. Tell us about, and also that they went after Bolsonaro's son and and the former spy chief who was using Pegasus and other means to illegally monitor Brazilian politicians that they oppose along with judges and Lula's mm-hmm. allies, right? Absolutely. I mean, let's be clear here. You know, Bolsonaro, uh, it's not like his only sin was his effort illegally to stay in power. His, his only sin was not just to, you know, to, to uh, consider a military coup. Uh, his entire reign of power in Brazil was full of uh, infractions from the minor to the major. Uh, and one of those, as you point out, was illegal monitoring of, um, of opposition figures. And, uh, and, you know, this was something that the head of the security uh, intelligence services and uh, Bolsonaro's son were involved in. Uh, and that's what they're currently being investigated for. I think this, uh, these investigations will uncover a great deal more about what actually took place over those four years in Brazil that range from, uh, you know, what took place in in the Amazon in terms of the environmental crimes that took place, uh, the corruption, and, you know, Bolsonaro was under investigation for any number of uh, corruption charges as well, um, to more specific kind of attempts to manipulate um, uh, politics in, in Brazil during those four years. So what then is the biggest difference here? I mentioned the dithering of the Attorney General 
who, by the way, just let out a report on Biden that was a hit job with all kinds of gratuitous attacks on Biden about his age and his, his memory, etc. I'm astounded as to why the Attorney General didn't... Um, he controlled that report. It was in his name, and yet he allowed all of that stuff to go out, in contrast to Bill Barr, of course, who sidetracked the Mueller report by framing it in a completely distorted way. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a decision, although, you know, it's it's hard to uh, be certain about this, but I think there was a strategic decision made by the incoming Biden administration that they could somehow persuade members of the Republican Party who themselves, who had engaged in insurrectionary behavior, um, persuade those people to kind of give up Trump as the scapegoat. That, uh, yes, we'll prosecute some of the low fry, the small fry who had participated in the January 6th um, insurrection, but uh, but we'll let everybody else go, you know, the, the Josh Hawleys in the Senate, um, and uh, you know some of the uh, other maybe top Republican figures, uh, as long as they kind of turn the other way and allow us to prosecute Trump and and basically just Trump, and that just failed. I mean, the Republican Party has coalesced around Trump. Uh, they've tied their fortunes to Trump. Uh, they basically said, if he's considered an insurrectionist, then, then we're insurrectionists and we'll, we'll go down uh, with the ship. Um, so I think that strategy has backfired. Probably a better strategy would have been to say, look, you know, we are going to prosecute people according to their actions and what they said uh, and let the chips fall where they will. Uh, that, that will mean probably uh, we will bring cases against some pretty uh, – pretty important Republicans throughout the system uh, from, you know, the state level all the way up to, to the House and Senate. Um, and I think that's what the, the Brazilians have decided to do. I think it's a, a the right choice. It's the transparent choice. It's the legal choice. But unfortunately, it's not what we've decided to do here. Well, John Pfeffer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me on the show. And again, I've been speaking with John Pfeffer, who is the co-director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. Previously, he worked as an associate editor of the World Policy Journal and has been an international affairs representative in Eastern Europe and East Asia for the American Friends Service Committee. He's the author of a number of books, most recently, Aftershock, A Journey into Eastern Europe's Broken Dreams. And his latest article of Foreign Policy and Focus is What Brazil Can Teach the U.S. About Defending Democracy from Insurrectionists. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The other became